0: Welcome, folks, to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam kasten Smith. Joining me today is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. All right. Well, we're jumping into episode three of our 10 part series that is looking at the question America, how did we get here? And today we're actually taking a look. Last episode, we looked at the American Revolution, we looked at the principles of the founding of our country. Today, just because it's kind of a time capsule, one, and two, because it really does influence future history to come from here in the world, we're going to look at the French Revolution and the philosophers that gave rise and birth to the French Revolution. Wee oui, wee, oui. <laughs> I knew it was coming. So today, before we jump into the French Revolution, what I want to do is just kind of set the stage. If you know when America's foundation happens, when the constitution's first ratified, it takes place in 1789 during that exact same year. If you were to get in a boat, travel across the Atlantic ocean, land in France, you would land on their shores in 1789 as the French revolution is underway. And so what's interesting about these two dynamics of you is you have two different countries, America and France that are both claiming to be chasing after the same thing, which is liberty. And they have two radically different approaches that are based on two radically different trains. If you remember where we've come from, you know, you've know you got the, the city of God and the city of man, you've got Luther and you've got Machiavelli. And, and in this, you really do see two different nations, one of whom is recognizing that our entire foundation has to come out of religion. And so you remember the RAIL, our, our acronym from last week, because we're going to be beating this throughout the series into people's heads. So there are four major elements that go into our understanding of the American Foundation. The first, So RAIL is the acronym. First one. American liberty is rooted in our religious belief. Our liberties come from God, not government. It's essential that we understand that our our rights come from a higher power, not the government. Therefore, the government cannot take them away. The second one is absolutes. Our, Our founders understood that in order for liberty to survive, the people had to be virtuous. But to have a virtue, it has to be based on absolutes that are outside of humanity. They're not just whims based on, you know, prevailing popular opinion or whatever. There are moral absolutes that everybody agrees to. Then you have the next ones which are individual rights. And you have limited government. And so we, we talked about all those. But I want to stop being you know, We gave you a long litany of quotes. We talked about the, the, the institutions and universities from the founding. It's, just, it's an overwhelming picture of just how important religion and Christianity was to our founders. James Madison, signer, architect of the Constitution, says this. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society... He must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. Governor in capital letters. That's right. God. In other words, Alexander Hamilton, signer of the constitution. There's a play going around about him. Heard about it. Yeah. Signer of the constitution. He said, the law dictated by God himself is of course, superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe in all countries and at all times, no human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. Rufus King, signer of the Constitution, my last one, he said this, the law established by the creator extends over the whole globe, is everywhere, and at all times binding upon mankind. This is the law of God by which he makes his way known to man and is paramount to all human control. And so from that, when everybody recognizes that they're under the, the heavenly king, God, that his law is binding on us, then the founders used that and all of the promises of that to make a sandbox for liberty where everybody could play. Benjamin Franklin, who's, it's fascinating because he spent a lot of time in France, as did Thomas Jefferson. When he's creating literature for the French You know, he makes pamphlets of why immigrants should move to America. He's trying to recruit talented people to take the journey. He writes this in one of the pamphlets. Bad examples to youth are more rare in America. Gosh, don't you wish we could say that today? (laughs) We can't. We really can't. Bad examples to youth are more rare in America, which must be comfortable consideration to parents. To this may be truly added that serious religion under its various denominations is not only tolerated, but respected and practiced. Atheism is unknown there and fidelity rare and secret. So this is the climate of America. That's wild. And then you'll see why that would have been so appealing <laughs> to, the, to the people of France because Protestantism and things like that were not exactly welcomed and embraced in France. We'll, we'll talk about that. But imagine being able to say that about our country. All right, so religion, absolutes, individual rights being more important than the collective, and the powers of that big bad government, Leviathan. It's strapped down, it has to be limited, otherwise, the government will just devour the people. Those are the principles upon which our government is founded. So let's pause there. We go back across the ocean to the French, and we see their most influential philosophers. So in America, you had Locke and you had Montesquieu and you you had you had Blackstone um, and, and, of course, the scriptures over all that. Well, in France, I would say the three most influential philosophers are going to be Rousseau, and it's Rousseau by a mile. Like the, the next one is Voltaire, uh, but Rousseau is going to be way, way ahead of him. He's going to be tremendously influential in the French Revolution. Then Voltaire, number two, and a guy named Denis Diderot uh, is going to be third and we're going to spend way more time on Rousseau than, than anyone else. Uh, so we're good. And this is, by the way, we are armchair historians, amateurs. So there's going to be a lot about the French revolution that's left on the table. If you're interested, you know, go study that thoroughly. But what I want to do more is look at the core elements of philosophy and to see how it's different in the French Revolution than in the American Revolution and to see how that turned out for them. (laughs) So you you probably already know where this is going because I have a bias. So Rousseau has this famous quote, right? He says, man is born free and everywhere he's in chains. And what he means by that is man is born free like he's given all these instincts Rousseau's going to be famous for believing that man is basically born good that all of his instincts and everything that he wants to do is good and yet society comes and tries to inhibit those behaviors and it's actually society that's corrupting the natural born instincts of man that should be free to just to be themselves he wrote people in their natural state are basically good now we hear that what do you what do you think of that will did he actually believe that? He actually believed that, or at least he wrote it like he actually believed that. It's a hot take. Like, I, I wonder if he locked his doors, <laughs> you know? But I guess he would say that society is what makes men thieves. He definitely didn't have kids. He actually did have kids. In fact, he had five kids. And after every single birth, he would abandon the child by dropping it off at the foundling hospital in Paris. And so he never actually did get to experience the human nature of children at birth because he always gave the child away. Father of the year material here. Really? Really. This coming from the man who is claiming that human beings are good from birth. And it's societal conventions that corrupt the man, right? He says... By this natural innocence, however, he is corrupted by the evils of society. And you're like, what? Very famous philosopher, super influential, right? And we look at that and go, wait a minute, he doesn't believe in the depravity of man, the fallen nature of man. He thinks that we're born basically good. And by the way, that idea is wildly popular in the church. Do you believe, you know that? Like all surveys, if you ask, Christians, evangelical Christians are men basically born good or bad. They will choose that man is born good. Really? It is wild. I thought like we as a society have figured that. Out. No, obviously not. Like look around guys. Yeah. There's a reason why you have a million passwords to remember on your computer and that you lock your doors and cars. And well, who does Rousseau think invented society? The wealthy and powerful. Okay. So that you'll see where this is going. Like, he believes that the oppressed are being exploited they're, you know, it's, he's very much all about the victim culture. And, and you know what? Like as you're listening to Rousseau, you can kind of see like, there's parts where you're like, Oh, I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Like there's some things you'll see. You, you'll be sympathetic to some of the stuff you hear. I think. So, Rousseau was totally fascinated by the savages. And I'm, that's that's his word. Don't don't send emails. <laughs> You're, <done>. You're out. <laughs> but he called them savages from the new world. All these, you know, tribal cultures that the, you know, they're discovering as they come over into the Americas. And he believed, watching them, that the influences of society and technology were only weakening man and diminishing freedom. And so let me read a quote from him and hang with it. And I'll, I'll try to explain it if it comes across confusing. But he said, talking about these savages, he says, if he had an axe, would he have been able to, with his naked arm, to break so large a branch from a tree? If he had a sling, would he have been able to throw a stone with so great a velocity? If he had a ladder, would he have been so nimble in climbing a tree? If he had a horse, would he have been himself so swift of foot? Yeah, give me a civilized man time to gather all his machines about him and he'll no doubt easily beat the savage. But if you would see a still more unequal contest, set them together, naked and unarmed, and you will soon see the advantage of having all of our forces constantly at our disposal. So what he's saying is you, you take the savage with all, all of our modern technologies and, and man at his basest instinct is superior over the modernized man. You know, it's like I was thinking of like modern examples. Like you may not even know this because you're too young, but we used to have to remember phone numbers, Mm. and so like I had I don't know maybe 20 or 30 phone numbers remembered. Now forget it. (laughs) Like I I I barely remember mine and Laura's. Like I don't remember phone numbers or directions. It used to be that you got really good at navigating using a map or you know knowing north and south and east and west and stuff like that. Now it's hey Siri. Give me directions to so-and-so. So the more devices and technology you get, man is getting dumber and dumber and less capable in his natural talents. And so Rousseau's saying, Hey, natural man is actually way better than we are by society. We're actually being enslaved to become weaker creatures. What do you think about that? Makes sense. Yeah, it's not wrong. All right. So, so you're on board with them. Well, let's not make such blanket statements. <laughs> so, So now he comes and he says, Well, what's different about between that and morality? Okay, like you you've got all these technological advances that make make man weak that you you throw on him. What about all the moral claims? What about the moral law? You know, he wants to, you know, the toddler, he wants to just grab the toy and you tell him no. Why is morality any different? and hindering his natural abilities and instincts and everything else than all the technology that you swamp him with. And this is where Rousseau is going to go. And he says it just makes us miserable. Like we're all obsessed with all of these possessions and everything else, and now we've become miserable. Listen, listen, So listen to what he says when he's talking about a comparison of civilized men and savages. There's a reason we're getting into this. Hopefully you'll see (laughs) by the end. So Rousseau wrote about a comparison of civilized men It against the savages, and so listen to what he says. And man, you're kind of like, I mean, he's not entirely wrong. So listen, he says, We see around us hardly a creature in civil society who does not lament his existence. Like, you have to go to the wealthy countries to find the depressed people. (laughs) That's what he's saying. We, we even see many deprive themselves as, as much of it as they can, and laws, human and divine together, can hardly put a stop to this disorder. So what he's saying is all of the council and all of the religiosity and everything else, it's not saving Western civilization from this depression. I ask if it was ever known that a savage took it into his own head when at liberty to complain about life or to make away with himself in other words to take his own life like you don't hear of savages doing that and then he goes on and he says his imagination paints no pictures his heart makes no demands of him his his few wants are so readily supplied and he is so far from having knowledge that is needful to make him want more that he can have neither foresight nor curiosity well let us therefore judge with less vanity on which side the real misery is found. In other words, you guys in your civil society and all of your possessions and your commerce and your wealth, you're totally enslaved to it. And you're miserable trying to get more and more and more. But you go over there and you look at them and they have nothing. They, They have no commerce. They have no systems. They're just totally free. They're born free and they live according to their Their freeness, which isn't true, but it's Rousseau's crude understanding of what (laughs) savages were like. And he says they're happier. They're happier than us. And so what he says is as man becomes sociable and a slave, he grows weak, timid, and servile. That is going to be kind of the foundational ideas behind Rousseau. Commerce, bad. Society, bad. Religiosity, bad. Morals, bad get back to your freedoms what do you think of that i mean the you can't say religion bad but yeah yeah he makes a lot of sense in just those two quotes yeah i mean you could see how people are like hmm yeah i you know that's right and so here here you come to kind of the crux of what makes america and france different at this time you see, France has this atheistic streak, this rebellion to oppressive Roman Catholicism, because at this point, Catholicism has a stranglehold on France. And there's this rebellious, like, we hate religion. We don't like what it does to people. It's, it's, it's stifling, it's suffocating. And so you get this atheistic streak that comes through its philosophers, and they equate all of this stuff with like the evils of religion. And back in those days, the French did not tolerate religious dissent. But I want to stop. So in America, you have this religious society. The French, by the way, are stunned by this. You have a religious society, but religious tolerance is like, it's pretty normal. Like you have Maryland, that's founded as a Catholic colony, and yet the nation is overwhelmingly Protestant, and they tolerate it. Charles Carroll, who is like a a vocal Catholic, was a signer of the Constitution. He's, He's... Catholic. His brother, John Carroll, you've probably heard that name before, seen schools named after John Carroll. He's the first archbishop in America who was out of Baltimore. These were respected people at the founding, even though they were Catholic. In France, you just didn't see them. You didn't. They didn't play well in the same box. Jews were welcomed by the founders. I, I came across a letter, uh, a 1790 letter that President Washington sent to congratulate Jewish citizens on founding a synagogue in Rhode Island. And listen to what he says to them. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in the land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of other inhabitants. And so like before, before anybody doubts this, I'm very well aware of the religious discrimination that the Irish immigrants are going to experience and everything else. What I want you to understand is that out of the foundation the ideas were for religious tolerance. So John Adams is writing to a friend uh, about the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And listen to what he says. Like, it's not like, oh yeah, well, we'll accept them. They're okay. Listen to what he says. The Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. They are the most glorious nation that has ever inhabited this earth. The Romans and their empire were but a bauble in comparison to the Jews. Well, he, yeah. I mean, he's not, this is not a low opinion. Get rid of these people. Like, so you see like here, you know, here's a first and second president, religious tolerance, bring on the Catholics, bring on the Jews. You know, they've got their own state essentially with Maryland, Maryland, like you, you see huh. that you didn't I didn't that. know that. Yeah, there you go. That's there put you it go. all together. But when you go to France, way different story. And so, the Roman Catholic church oppressively crushed other beliefs. So if you're thinking, okay, we've got the French revolution in 1789, just back up a hundred years. And I want you to jump into the mind of guys like Rousseau and Voltaire because they really, and, and Diderot, because they really hate religion. In 1685, you have Louis the, the 14th who issues the edict of Fontainebleau and it overturns, a law that promised religious tolerance to, to religious minorities. And so listen to the edict. He says, it is intended to, in order to wholly obliterate the memory of troubles this false religion has caused in this kingdom. So this is Protestants. So imagine how hostile they would have been to atheism or, or the Jewish faith. Faithful pastors at this particular time as a result of this edict were executed. Those who harbored pastors were forced to spend their lives rowing inside the galleys of ships that were being sent all over the Atlantic. So if that wasn't bad enough, fast forward, I don't know, what is it, 40 years? And you get to Louis the Fifteenth and he issues the Declaration of 1724 that strengthens, because that's not strong enough, <laughs> strengthens the ban on Protestants. And so they're arrested, they're convicted. Soldiers are going around confiscating Protestant Bibles and Psalters, religious books. They're all then burned in the public squares. Does this sound familiar? Towns that that allowed Protestant services are fined. Protestant children are taken from parents and rebaptized. Protestant families are forced to flee from their homes. And so this and and this isn't even the worst of it. It gets worse as we're creeping toward Voltaire and the other guys. This this kind of intense persecution and intolerance. You can imagine if if why you would resent the christian faith if if the only flavor of it you've seen is this oppressive roman catholic cruelty you would hate it and by the way they were the monarchy and the the roman catholic faith were in bed together like everything came from both of them in unison and so they hated the church so rousseau believed that you know like we said that people are born good, but it's it's society, it's religion that comes and oppresses them and and that's you know he, he wanted nothing to do with it. And so Rousseau's very hostile to the church's role in society and he believes that it is among the the most antithetical institutions to liberty, true liberty that's out there. And I think that becomes kind of the hallmark of the French Revolution. And so Rousseau had actually been raised up to be a young Christian man. But he wrote this. He said, I had been brought up in a church which decides everything and permits no doubts, so that having rejected one article of the faith, I was forced to reject all the rest. So this is instructive to us on the importance of allowing people to own their own consciences. You can't compel people to believe what you want them to believe. And the founders understood that, right? As an adult, these childhood experiences colored his political philosophy. Listen to what he says. Christianity preaches only servitude and dependence. Its spirit is so favorable to tyranny that it always profits such a regime. And so as he's looking at the carnage of the Inquisition in Europe and all the the papal abuses of Rome, Rousseau referred to the church as, quote, the most violent despotism in the world. And to be honest with you, when you study that period, you can totally understand why he would have seen that or believed that. Mm-hmm. But again, authentic Christianity, when it's when it's rightly practiced, is far different than what Rousseau experienced. And so he said we should do well like he believed that just even the existence of religion is what made people bad so he asked this he he says this we should do well to inquire of these evils of society didn't spring up with the laws given by the church themselves and so he totally believes so rousseau's going to be a big fan of democratic ideals a big fan of democratic ideals and you know our founders feared the mob they were not pure Democrats, and the the term that they believe everybody should just have a vote and that government is the rule of the mob. They wanted protections from the mob. That's why it's a republic. That's why we have elected representatives. Rousseau, on the other hand, believed that the general will of the people alone can direct the forces of the state according to the common good. And so that was his big thing. You need to get rid of of the church, you need to get rid of the monarchy, and it becomes this democratic society where the common, the general will alone directs the forces of the state. Which, you know, he's going to say, you remember the Leviathan Hobbes talks about, you know, the government is this Leviathan that just is so powerful that no individual can can maintain it. And the founders are like, well, let's figure out a way to wrap that thing up (laughs) and tie it down and limit its scope and everything else. Rousseau had the opposite thing. He says, no, the state is going to be absolutely unleashed to be this powerful force, but it's going to be directed by the general will, the democratic will. Obviously his thoughts all stem from this idea that man is born good. Yeah. If that's your, if that's your foundation, then yeah, you would, you would have to believe something like this. That's right. And so what he wants is that general will cannot be crushed by any external pressures. Remember, he believes man is good and is corrupted by traditions and church dogma and anything that's outside of the willpower of natural men. And so he's even going to advocate for the death penalty for anyone who violates the social contract. Like if you go outside of the general will and you're advocating against it, you should be put to death. And here's where Rousseau gets really fascinating. So he's writing, you know, all of this about political philosophy and he rails against religion again and again. And then he says, quote, no state has ever been founded without religion at its base. And so he says, if we're going to found a new government, it needs religion, but let's just make it a civil religion, you know, a civil religion that believes, yeah, okay, there's some nebulous something out there. There's some God out there, you know, there's an afterlife, sure, with a system of rewards and punishments. If you're a good person, you know, that'll help us govern society. There's justice for all. And oh, by the way, and this particular civil religion everybody must have a reverence for the social contract and for the state in other words this is going to be a state religion very much like the roman days where yeah okay you had the gods but it was gods like roma and you know they were patron gods that were that were uplifting the state and were loyal to the state you know our god is not loyal to any particular country it's like you know he has his own agenda and his own kingdom But Rousseau wanted a religion that basically was nothing but a a bunch of cheerleaders for the government, for the state, for the for society. And so, and this is where like you start saying, man, this this sounds familiar. Okay, we got the hostility against religion. We've got this notion that man is good, that he's oppressed by all these outside forces. And he comes and he's saying, okay, if I'm, we're going to come up with dogmas for this new civil religion, listen to what he says. As for negative dogmas, I would limit them to a single one. No intolerance. Mm. Does that sound familiar? There it is. <laughs> I mean, hello, we're there. He says intolerance is something which belongs to the religions we have rejected. In other words, absolutes is what he's talking about. Then he says it is impossible to live in peace with people one believes to be damned. In other words, if the Christians are telling us that without Jesus, that we go off and we're no longer part of the citizenship of heaven, that, that we're going to be separated, well, then we can't live among those people. So the only thing we will not tolerate, ironically, is intolerance. Nice. Does that sound familiar? It does. <laughs> How do you see that today? It sounds like we're reading this today as a sneak peek to where this is going to go, which, which of the series of philosophers do you get the sense is, is winning in America right now? This one for sure. Well, hostility toward religion, the abandonment of absolutes, the idea that the only negative dogma is going to be, you know, no intolerance. This starts feeling a little familiar. And even like this serves as a prelude to Marxism. So you were asking like, who did he think created society? He says that listen to this quote. He says, the first man, who having enclosed a piece of ground, thought himself and said, this is mine and found people simple enough to believe him. That was the real founder of civil society. He established all the rules around it to basically protect his power and to exploit those that were weaker than him. In other words, it's the man, (laughs) you know, the man is out there and he is oppressing you and he's keeping you and he's got a system to keep you under his thumb. Um, And he was a big, he, openly advocated that the government should prevent inequality in the distribution of wealth. So this is also pointing you kind of at the infancy of what will ultimately become economic Marxism. He says no citizen should be so very rich that he can buy another and none so very poor that he's compelled to sell himself. Well, like nobody wants people bought and sold. Yeah. But what he's saying is the government should have the power to make that not happen. Yeah. Take your wealth and give it to the poor. So he believed in a government of redistributing wealth. He he said the rank of citizens ought to be regulated not according to their personal merit. There we go. That that feels very familiar. In other words, it's not about how good you perform, it's not about how, you know, how high you can climb up the the ladder. It's not about your personal talents. The rank of citizens should be regulated by the government. In other words, the government's going to tell you where, you're, where you are in the pecking order. And he says, and that comes according to your actual services done to the state. Nice. Like, and this is what he's proposing. Like, This is how we get to liberty. Like, I'm like, what? How do, how do you understand liberty like that? I don't think he does. And I'll tell you, the difference is the founders understood liberty to mean that the government can't compel you to do anything against your wishes, but the highest virtue for Rousseau is not liberty, it's equality. He wants the government to make society embrace a world where everybody can do whatever they want and yet the government is going to come behind and make sure that everybody lands with equal blessings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'm on the same page as Rousseau anymore. Hey, right? I mean, he took a turn real quick, and that's the reality. The moment that you start failing to see that humanity is depraved and that no human being can be trusted with power, you're going to fall off the liberty train. Like you, You just can't help it. Um, and so then we come to the the second most influential guy, and this is Voltaire. We're going to run through these real quick. Voltaire's best known for his kind of scathing attitude toward religion and the church. Um, Rousseau believed and and like man is good. He believed in the general will and democracy. Voltaire was like, nope, humanity's terrible. Like he's totally gets that. Okay, but he thinks. We need to have a really powerful monarchy. Like we need to let the Leviathan out, but then listen to what he says. It's just a wild difference between France and America. He says, the best government is a benevolent tyranny, which is oxymoron, right? The best government is a benevolent tyranny tempered by an occasional assassination. Can you make sense of why he says that? <laughs> That's awesome, though. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a baller line. It's like crazy, wow. Did he just really say that? The best government's a benevolent tyranny tempered by an occasional assassination. And so this is what he means. Democracies are mobs they they do the dumbest things. They vote themselves money. they destroy economies. They're temperamental. they chase you know the mob does really goofy and impulsive things. So you need someone who's strong and wise at the top who can dictate what's best for everyone but they can't be so tyrannical that they just trample everybody so the king needs to fear the people and how do you make the king fear the people just yeah kill every once in a while that's right <laughs> every once in a while they they need to be killed you know and that way they fear the people so he won't get too tyrannical and so you can kind of understand where where Voltaire's coming from It's a horrible form of government next to the american model but I, okay i get where you're coming from if there's no God and you don't, you know, no virtue in society and you don't trust men to ever be capable of virtue, all right, maybe, decent plan. maybe this is the best we could do. He So anyway, Voltaire knows democracies are even worse than tyrannies. You know, that's kind of his perception. Um, and so he wants to unchain the Leviathan, you know, bring it on. But like Rousseau, he was absolutely adamant about eliminating the church as a governing force in the state. Like he hated the church. And when you look at his life, you can kind of understand why. He, and so he's, he comes along, and one of the contributions that he does give to the American experiment is he says, There cannot be two powers in one state. The distinction between the spiritual power and the temporal power is abused. And so, what is, he, what is that? That is, you cannot have the church governing over civil matters. They need to be totally kept separate. So First Amendment and our Constitution says, you know, Congress can make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, religion cannot be an arm of the state and the state cannot be an arm of religion is the idea. And that comes, you know, from multiple people, but Voltaire's a big fan of that and is well known for that. So Voltaire is going to hate the church probably more than than Rousseau and here's here's why he has up close personal understanding of why the catholic church is dangerous He's, so the french monarchy and the catholic church didn't just target protestants they targeted all religious minorities including atheists and so in 1766 3 decades before the revolution a guy by the name of jean françois d'alabe could, can I, did I say that? Right? That was really good. I was, I was pr- kind of proud when it came out. He was an atheist, and so he was accused of showing disrespect toward Catholicism, like singing blasphemous songs, and he was accused of defecating on a crucifix, which well, that's kind of inappropriate. Yeah. So the court comes along, and it forces him to confess his crimes, and if you know anything about ancient executions, that basically means tortures him until he says he does something wrong. Once he confessed it, then they had his tongue cut out, and then they ordered him, and this is the direct quote out of the court order, to have his head cut off on a scaffold. His body and his head will be thrown on a pyre to be destroyed, burnt, reduced to ashes, and these thrown to the wind. As a warning to Voltaire and other atheists, the court then ordered that Voltaire's new book, The Philosophical Dictionary was to be thrown by the executioner on the same pyre as the body. Like, in other words, Voltaire, I know you've run away from France fearing for your life, but if you ever come back, this is your fate. (laughs) That's a warning. (laughs) So, like, you get the idea. The church is just stifling any kind of religious freedom. And so... Voltaire had not lived in France from 1750, and he's going to die in 1778, which, by the way, is the same year Rousseau dies. So these guys live only 11 years before the French Revolution. They're like right there. And so let me give you a perspective on how much Voltaire hates Christianity's impact on the world. Ready? Quote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. Hmm. Right? Now, to be fair, he didn't get to witness the impact of his own philosophies that are about to be unleashed in the French Revolution. He was also a rabid anti-Semite. So he called the Jews a small, new, ignorant, crude people. And inside that philosophical dictionary that was burned on the pyre, he said, they are all of them born with raging fanaticism in their hearts, just as the Bretons and the Germans are born with blonde hair. I would not be in the least bit surprised if these people would not someday become deadly to the human race. And so think about the irony of him referencing Germans with blonde hair Mm. and the Jews becoming a source of that's deadly to the human race. I mean, he got that one way wrong. Um, But that's Voltaire. And so those are some of his contributions and you can see the hostility toward religion. And Denise Diderot, who's a, he's a scientist, an empiricist, a science. He published an encyclopedia that was banned by the government and the church. No, no surprise there. But his quote is so ridiculously incredible that I, I just had to include him to be able to give his quote. He says, quote, man will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. He died in 1784, five years before the French Revolution. This is the kind of pot, the boiling pot that's going on in the realm of ideas in France. So you get like wildly different than what we see in the American Revolution. And so the guy who is kind of the ringleader of the French Revolution, his name is Maximilian Robespierre, And I'm just going to read one quote from him because he believes, okay, if we don't have religion, what is it that's going to compel people to obey? And you know what he says? Terror. And that becomes like, this is just normal. Like they, they embrace it. It's okay. This is what the French revolution is. Listen to what he says. If the basis of popular government and peacetime is virtue, the basis of popular government during a revolution is both virtue and terror virtue without which terror is baneful terror without which virtue is powerless. In other words, what he's saying is if you have virtue, but you don't have terror to compel people to your direction, it's baneful. But if you have terror without it being like toward a good purpose, it's, it's powerless. It won't go anywhere. He says, terror is nothing more than a speedy, severe and flexible justice. It is thus an emanation of virtue. Whoa. And so we don't even have categories um, for for what he is is saying here. But let's just run through. What does the French Revolution yield? Starting in 1789, they began a program of de-Christianization in 1790, they launched the civil constitution of the clergy. So it's the same playbook as all tyrannies. Like the moment a tyrant comes, they want to get rid of the church or to marginalize the church or to silence the church. Every one of them, it seems like. And so that made all clergy employees of the government's new religion. And they had to agree to teach only the civil religion. It outlawed all collections of tithes by the church. The government, this new state, seized and sold all the properties owned by the Catholic church, which was 6.5% of all their property, which included churches, schools, hospitals, monasteries, convents, all their public services. And then they began this incredibly vicious persecution of the church. And they imposed death sentences on defiant clergymen. They forced churches to close. They outlawed religious schools. Then statues were all over the place. Any religious statues were decapitated as a reminder of Marie Antoinette's fate. Two dozen uh, of statues are defaced outside Notre Dame cathedral. Then they go in and they take the cross that's in Notre Dame cathedral and they remove it and replace it with the goddess reason at the altar of Notre Dame and then surround it with provocative dancers the, the French government abolished the Gregorian calendar because it was based on Christianity. They imposed a 10-day week because the seven-day week is a biblical idea. And then they tried to convince their people to celebrate the festival of the supreme being. You know, it's like, you know, exactly. Like, it's like, this is festival. What is going on? <laughs> but you, like, this hostility, this idea that, you know, you cannot have liberty with religion... Begins to spread all throughout Europe. And so when French revolutionaries launch what they call the reign of terror, it becomes like this extreme bloodlust, and the guillotines never get a break. An estimated 16,594 people are put to death by the guillotine. 12,000 people are murdered without a trial. In addition, 10,000 people are left to die in prison. And in 1794, in the middle of all this lawlessness, you know how's the how's this absence of religion working out for you, France? And 1794, even Maximilian Robespierre loses his head in the guillotine. So the guy who's leading the French Revolution, eventually the Leviathan, this monster, the mob, turns on him and he loses his own head. And so in the middle of all this, you get this young military commander who's charged with conspiracy and treason because he was seen as Robespierre's protege. And somehow he escaped with his head. And five years later, this man seized power in a coup d'etat. We know him as Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. And so the greatest tragedy of the French revolution still still to be seen. And it comes because it was so destabilizing to France that this man comes to power and he leads France on a crusade to bring the entire continent under his control as emperor. So in 1810, he takes control of a huge swath of territory in Europe, you know, Spain, Germany, Poland, Italy, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, like a, a good bunch of of Europe. But like somebody a century later, he makes the mistake of invading Russia and gets bogged down, and now you have a series of nations, Russia, Prussia, Austria, England, they join forces against him. And he fails and he's defeated. And so after Waterloo, France has to give back all the territory that Napoleon had conquered. But this is the crazy part. Between the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, three and a half million people died. Wow. This is well before the First and Second World War when Europe's population was significantly lower. And so when historians talk about this, they say it's, about, it's just a little bit under the same casualty rate. Is World War One. So this Napoleon and the French Revolution, this idea that you can accomplish liberty without God, that you can make man the measure of all things, that man is good, that he be- he can be trusted with power. You should give the state more power to carry out this equality and everything else. What does that sound like? The state taking more and more power to carry out equality, and and that you know the only thing that cannot be tolerated is intolerance and. All of this yields this outrageous bloodbath. And so, you know, in our first episode, we said the great quote from Thucydides when he says, history is merely philosophy teaching by example, right? And so let's look at history. And let me ask you, what sort of grade would you give to the philosophies of Rousseau, Voltaire, and Diderot? Not very good. <laughs> Not very good, especially at all. because there's a lot of headless people. Yeah, I mean, it, it just bloodshed. It was terrible. Uh, yielded only turmoil and instability and bloodshed. And like, by the way, since that revolt, France has adopted seventeen different constitutions. We're still on the same one. <laughs> so, I mean, if we're comparing constitutional foundations, like I'll take ours. Thank you very much. Wow, seventeen! I didn't know. I didn't know that. That's yeah. a fascinating fact. It, it is a very fascinating fact. And so what's, what's interesting is when the founders saw and they witnessed what was taking place in France. Remember, our founders and the French were loyal. We both fought against the British together. They were our allies. And yet when we watched the French Revolution, we saw that they were utterly opposed to all of our founding principles. Remember, our founding principles are it's absolutely rooted in, in religion and a belief that our rights come from God. For them, gone. That's not even on the table. We believed in moral absolutes sourced by the scriptures. They saw absolutes, any kind of societal conventions, as oppressive and got rid of them all. We believed that the rights of the individual, the collective comes together to guarantee the rights of the individual They rallied the individual, this general will, and imposed punishments and all kinds of tortures and death penalties on any individual who stood against the collective. We wanted checked power. We wanted limited government. We didn't want the Leviathan out of control because we knew what a Leviathan could do. They provided government with unchecked power to commit outrageous atrocities. And guess what? Governments do that. And so when our founders looked at the French Revolution, they were disgusted. Alexander Hamilton called the French Revolution a disgusting spectacle. It's a good word. And he writes, the attempt by the rulers of a nation to destroy all religious opinion and to pervert a whole nation to atheism is a phenomenon of wickedness. To establish atheism on the ruins of Christianity is to deprive mankind of its best consolations and most animating hopes and to make a gloomy desert of the universe. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration, said, By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects. It is the only correct map of the human heart that has ever been published. In mocking the French for enthroning the goddess Reason and Notre Dame, Washington in his farewell address, so right in the middle of all the craziness of the revolution, says this, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principles. So take your reason and put it up your pipe and smoke it or whatever. <laughs> I think you're mixing a couple there. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think I did. Yeah. Now, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, and I'm going to close with the words of a Frenchman, in the aftermath of the French Revolution and all of the turmoil and devastation and death that they suffered, Alexis de Tocqueville boards a ship, sails across the Atlantic, comes to America to study our justice system. And while he's here, he can't help but to make observations on who America is. And in 1835, he wrote a book called Democracy in America, and he's offering his reflections on our country and coming from France. In the aftermath of all that, he marvels and says this, the Americans combine the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. And with them, this conviction does not spring from that barren, traditionary faith which seems to vegetate rather than to live in the soul. And that's the reality. That's who we were. And in, as we're going to see through the next several episodes in the series, every time that you find a society that begins to drift away from God and to push for these kinds of ideals that say we're going to empower the government to do lots of good and the absence of that religious principle, the most horrific atrocities in history take place. In the realm of philosophy, we know that something moved America off true north. Join us next week as we begin to take a look at how America began to slowly start veering from its foundations. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and that you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero and The Inspiration by Keys of Moon, Ogenberg by Spheria, and Permafrost by Scott Buckley. You can learn more about the Out of Water Podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.